Welcome everybody online there as well as here in the room. Uh, good to see all of you. You all look uh, reasonably good. <laughs> we are uh, in chapter nine in our study of Ecclesiastes, as I think you know. Um, if you know the book, we're nearing the end of the book, actually. I suspect in another maybe two weeks, we will probably finish it. Uh, as I think I mentioned Yes. Here, did okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think what we're going to do is then launch on a study of Galatians and James together. There are two uh, quite marvelous books of the New Testament, but I have taught them often in conjunction with one another because of uh, they're written about the same time, forty nine, eighty forty nine or so, and uh, written by two polar opposite individuals, the Apostle Paul and the Apostle James. But James says we are justified by works in chapter 2, verse 14 and following. Paul says we're justified by faith in chapter 3 and 4. How do you reconcile those two? And that's not the only thing we're going to do, but that we're going to launch in a study of those two books. So I'll be uh, compiling this stuff now, and I'll be sending it out here in a couple of weeks. In chapter 9, um, and it really began with verse 16 of chapter 8, and if you follow the outline or if you're following how I broke the uh, parts of the book together, uh, he's dealing with in this entire section from chapter 3 on. He's dealing with the providence of God, that God's sovereignty is real, that God is involved. He's providentially involved in his world. But for Solomon, that creates tension. It creates things he can't explain. And the theme here through verse 9 is the issue of human joy. Um, and let me summarize what he's saying. I want to look at the evidence he presents. What he's saying is, if I can, if I can put it in one or two pithy phrases, don't try to figure out what God is doing. You're never going to have the comprehensive, complete, exhaustive understanding of everything God is doing. Now, we talked about this before, because you are finite, you are temporal beings, you're created beings. He is infinite, he's eternal, and he's the creator. And because that is true, he's sovereign, he rules over his world, so to speak, but he's also, his providence is real, he's involved in his world. Things don't, uh, if we can put it this way, things don't just happen. God is superintending the events this is the, the tension we feel as human beings to accomplish his purposes. And so one of the conclusions, the only one, but one of the conclusions Solomon reaches is, therefore, because we can't understand everything, God gives us the capacity to enjoy life. And that you, you say, well, that's like, duh, but <laughs> that's really an important issue because so many believers, at least, I shouldn't say so many, Several people I've known in the years of my ministry, they're the most miserable people to be around. I mean, you, you, you kind of avoid them because they're, they're just miserable. They don't have any joy in life at all. And but Solomon is saying that should not characterize us. And you're going to see this in verse 7, in verse 8, and verse 9. To enjoy The capacity to enjoy life is a gift from God. You're never going to figure everything out, so trust him. And enjoy, enjoy what he has given to you, regardless of the specifics. Are you making that application for Christians and non-Christians? Well, uh, since 
I'm speaking to Christians here, and primarily Solomon is trying to address people who do have faith in God. I mean, his people, Israel, and so on. So especially for believers, we should have the joy of the Lord. I'm using a phrase that's in various parts of the Bible. We should have the joy of the Lord. And it's also important to remember that joy is one of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, remember that? So joy should characterize us. So maybe I should do one more thing. Joy does not necessarily mean that we're breaking out hilarious laughter at all times. That's not necessarily, those two do not necessarily equate. I studied under a man who said, genuine biblical joy is a continual attitude of gratitude to God. So you live with that attitude of gratitude, that whatever God is, whatever verb you want to use, allowing, permitting, organizing, superintending you to go through in your life, be grateful for that. My mother used to say uh, near, near the end of her life, I'm grateful every day that I take a breath and my lungs are filled with oxygen and I can go on living. I mean, she, she died when she was in her 92. But the, the point I'm making is that this, this is what Solomon is trying to say to us. So if you look at verse 1 of chapter 9, he, he speaks of, but all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. That's a wonderful statement. It's a declaration. It's a proclamation. It's a proposition. How the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. That's a statement of God's sovereignty. But it's also a statement of God's providence. And remember, the, the, the nuance of difference there is providence means God is involved He's not only sovereignly ruling, not sitting up there on a throne and having a day and decreeing things. He is intimately involved in his world. And Solomon makes that statement, whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and to the evil, to clean the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. What's the same event? Yeah, he talks about that throughout this book. He keeps bringing this up. But now listen to me, because that is the reality. It doesn't matter who you are, what, what your position in life is, and in, in the way you put it, whether you, you follow God or not, whether you are, the way we talk about it, this side of the cross, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, everybody's going to die. Should that lead to despair? That was not a rhetorical question. No. Should that lead to despair? No. Not for the believer, especially. Because for the believer, death is a portal to eternal life. But what he's saying here is this same event everybody faces. Verse 3. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. The hearts of the children of men are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all, the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. Okay, now, that's a proverb. Verse 4 is like a proverb. So he's getting to this point. Even though we are going to die, and even though that is every human being is going to die, it doesn't matter who you are, 
whatever your station in life is, what's your response to that? What he says is, enjoy the life that you have now. My mother used to say, every time I take a breath and it fills my lungs with air, I'm thankful to God. Because he says something. A living dog is better than a dead lion. That's a proverb. What? (laughs) Because as long as you're alive, as long as you're alive, there's a blessing, there's a benefit, there's a joy to that. A dead lion, I mean, in the ancient world, and to some extent that's still true today, the lion was a powerful, majestic animal, often associated with royalty. A dog in the ancient world, I mean, today, when you talk about all people, ah, oh, ah, oh, in the ancient world, a dog was not looked at that way. The very, very wealthy may have domesticated dogs for the most part. Dogs were the scavengers of the ancient world. And, and you would refer to someone in a very derogatory manner by calling them a dog. We don't do that today. I mean, most of us speak of puppies. And we, I, you know, I am just, I don't know how you guys are. I am astonished at how aggressive advertising for pet food is today. I mean, it's unbelievable. I mean, it's, it's, I, I'm not going to do it because it would be a waste of time. But I'd be interested in somebody calculating how much money is spent just in advertising for pets compared to advertising for the care and goodness of human beings. And I, the statistics are pretty high how much is spent. I'm not saying that's wrong, but it just it's interesting how cultural change changes our perception of things. So he's saying a living dog, which most people did not particularly like, is better than a dead lion, which was in a symbol of royal. What does he mean? He goes on. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no reward for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love, their hate, their envy have already perished. For who... Forever, they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. And in, in your notes, I just, I talk a little bit about this to try to flesh this out. And he's, he's only looking at one aspect of this. And that's the aspect that will lead to his conclusion, verse 7 and following. But if you're dead, you lack all consciousness. You have no no capacity to express the emotions of love, hate, envy. All of that is gone. Now, he's not denying eternal life. He, he doesn't deny that. He, he talks about that in other places. He's just comparing. Here you are. God has given you life. He's given you a responsibility. He stewarded you with you know, land, animals, property, whatever in the ancient world, however in the ancient world you would think about it. And God wants you to do something with that. Enjoy it. Be a good steward of it. Because once you're dead, there's no more opportunity, and the words he uses for rewards, there's no more opportunity to, let's put it the way we might put it, there's no more opportunity to serve God in this life and make an impact return. So therefore, he reaches a conclusion. Go, in verse 7, and I, in my notes, I just put it in my Bible here, I just put a little, therefore, it isn't in the text, but therefore, because this is true. Therefore, go, eat your bread with joy, drink your mind with a mer- wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved of what you do. Don't feel guilt about enjoying life. That's what he means by that. For God has already approved it. Don't feel guilty about enjoying life. Don't feel guilty about going out to dinner. 
and enjoying a good meal. I'm kind of putting it in our context. I won't say don't feel guilt about enjoying a good glass of wine because some of you don't want me to talk like that. <laughs> so it's just whatever you apply and however you think about it. Enjoy the life that God is giving. That's what he's saying. And then he goes on, and these are kind of, um, again, they're almost like proverbs, but let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoying dressing up and adorning your body. Enjoying good hygiene for your body. Enjoy life with your wife, whom you love. All the days of your life, all of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. Because this is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hands find to do, do it with your might. For there is no work, thought, knowledge, or wisdom in Sheol. Now, Sheol is what we're doing there. We're bringing it from the Hebrew letter for letter in English. S-H-E-O-L. Bring it in English. And the problem with that is we don't exactly know what it means. Because Sheol can mean hell. But most of the times, I forget the statistic, it's something like 80% of the time, it's used in the Old Testament. It just refers to the grave. That's all he's saying. He's not talking about judgment here. He's not talking about it. He's just saying. Because in Sheol, those things are in the grave, you know. So, again, what is his appeal? Let's work through his logic. The providence and sovereignty of God. You cannot figure it out. You cannot always understand it. And because every human being cannot figure it out, every human being faces one destiny. They will die. And you have a choice. Is that going to lead to a life of despair? Or is that going to lead to a life of joy? What is Solomon saying? Choose joy. It's a gift from God. God wants you, and I mean, this is this is something that um, I don't want to get in a long bunny trail here, but this is something that I, I sometimes am disappointed to be around Christians. Sometimes, not always, but sometimes, depending on the situation, but they do not seem to be really enjoying life. There are, as my dad used to, they're so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. <laughs> I have to think through that. Yeah. But it, it is, I think I can put it this way and put it as, as a stewardship. It is our responsibility to enjoy the life that God has given us, regardless of specific circumstances or, you know, our socioeconomic status or whatever. To enjoy, have that attitude of gratitude. That's how my, my, my professor defined it. That attitude of gratitude about life, whatever the situation is. And so, because as long as you're drawing breath, God has you here for a purpose. So enjoy what God has given. You can see it too in little children when they wake up from a nap, they're ready to go. <laughs> Even if you're not. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> and Absolutely. They just go. And you're looking, you know, they're optimistic. Yeah. I often, my grandkids are still, the oldest is is eight, and the youngest is nine months. But, you know, they, they still are in that stage where they're just enjoying everything. Yeah. You know, they, everything's fun. Even in school, and they're so enthusiastic, and Peggy and I keep saying, oh, my. <laughs> they're soon going to enter the disease called adolescence. And you're like, oh, <laughs> And all of the things of life begin and emotions become 
and all the hormones start to rage and all that. So do, do you, I, I'm done with this section now because I want to move into the next section. But do you understand what he's pleading for in, in chapter 9, verses 1 through 10? It's, it's a wonderful counsel for us. Have that attitude of gratitude about all aspects of your life. God wants you. Don't feel guilty about enjoying life. Don't feel guilty about enjoying a good meal. Don't feel, you know, you can fill in the blank on anything. That is anything about your life. Now, obviously, he is not talking about sin here. But he's talking about enjoying the life God's given you, whatever that might mean in terms of the specifics. Okay. You either have, your silence means you completely understand what I've been saying, or you have no idea what I've been saying, you know, a frame question, but I'm going to choose the former that you understand it. Now, verse 11 of chapter 9 through really 11, chapter 6, and that will take us right up to the very last segment of the book, but uh, what he, he wants to talk here, and I, in a way I'm sort of artificially dividing, but I think it's helpful to try to divide his thinking and what he's writing about into categories. Here he, is, he wants to address, and it's a broad category, he wants to address, again, God's providence and human wisdom. God's, God's providence and human wisdom. A wise person, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to float a couple of ideas that he wants to put on the table. A wise person cannot predict the future. A wise person plans. A wise person strategizes about the future. The Bible says over and over again to plan wisely. You know, be like the ant uh, in Proverbs 24. Be like the ant and, and, and prepare for the future. Save resources. Be diligent in planning. But the wise person still does not know what the future is going to hold. Yet there's the providence. Who does know what the future holds? God does. To trust him, but he's going he's going he's going to help us to understand that wisdom, which is the call of God upon our lives, we are to be wise people, have discernment, have discretion, have prudence, have understanding. There are those wisdom words in the Old Testament, but that still doesn't mean you know the future. God does. So how, how then do we live with that reality? How does that affect how we live? This is, start, this is what he starts to talk about. So if you look at verse 11, he wants to begin a series of examples where wisdom, you plan, you strategize, but you have no guarantees about the future. So he uses some examples. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift. The battle to the strong. Bread to the wise. Riches to the intelligent. Favor to those with knowledge. What? Sometimes the fastest runner doesn't win the race. Sometimes. The best-equipped military battalion doesn't win the battle. Sometimes the wisest person doesn't have enough to eat. Sometimes the very, very intelligent, high IQ, are not necessarily the richest. And sometimes 
the people who have vast knowledge, four PhDs, they do not necessarily find favor. See, this is what he's getting at. Because all five of those, to, to win the race, to, to win a military battle, I mean, you could go on and on, all five of the examples, require preparation, require discipline, require, require strategies, but it does not necessarily mean you're going to win. And so this is what he said. This is what I've observed. For man, verse 12, for man, well, I didn't finish, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time. And so, again, you plan, you strategize, you prepare, but misfortune, time and chance, misfortune can cause all five of these examples to end up in a way you don't want them to end up. You lose the race, but you were the best runner. You prepared. You worked hard. Think of the Olympics. Or sometimes, you know, the matter of winning is a matter of a second or a fraction of a second, which is the loss. And he's saying, for man does not know his time. And that, that is, again, that's kind of like a, a, a proverb almost. But we are not in control. But that doesn't mean someone is not, but we're not in control. He says, like fish that are taken in evil men, like birds caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Okay, now this this can be a little depressing. <laughs> and it can be, but, but he, he's just saying, listen, misfortune, accidents, uh, surprising developments can thwart all your wise plans. Does that cause you consternation? Do you struggle with that? That's the reality, isn't it? Sometimes the best prepared the best prepared military doesn't always win the battle. And if you know anything about history, you know, there have been a couple of examples of that. The best prepared army doesn't always win because sometimes there'll be a terrible storm that will come up and cause the army to be divided. I mean, there's just zillions of things that could happen. And all he's saying is, don't think you're in control. Don't think that if I do this, 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 therefore I'm guaranteed this. It doesn't mean you don't do this, this, and this, this, but you trust the results of God. When I, uh, when I was ordained, which is, you know, decades and decades and decades ago, it seems like the crust was just starting to harden after the flood, but it seems like so long ago. A mentor, my, he was such an important man in my life. He just said to me, Jim, don't take on your responsibility to change people. Work hard, prepare hard, study hard. But he'd say this, leave the results to God. That was, that was one of the most important things that I ever heard in my whole life, because that has helped me to think about what I do. I work hard. I mean, I work very, very hard, but the results are up in God's hands. And if no, nobody, is, nobody is benefiting from what I do, I'm trying to be faithful to what God wants me to do. Now, I hope, I'm not trying to use that in a self-elevating way, but this is an illustration. You do what God wants you to do, but you leave the results to him. 
And so, I mean, an application of something like this, because remember what he's saying, that the, what he's dealing with, it's the providence of God in human wisdom. And in, in this, he's going to use six examples. We just covered the first example. He just uses five aspects of life. You work hard, you prepare hard, but sometimes the fastest runner doesn't win the race. Sometimes the best prepared battle, the Italian doesn't win the battle. Because man does not know his time. Misfortune can, misfortune can throw a wrench into everything. You don't know that's coming, but God does. Second example. Just, just a second. Yeah, please. So I'm, I'm, I'm missing um, the effect of Satan of this world in, the, in what he's saying here. Well, he, of course, and that's, that's, a, that's a good comment, Fred. He doesn't bring that in here. But for you and me, as we take the entire corpus of Scripture, we would add that into, as another element because that could be that could be a part snared at the end of verse 13, uh, 12, excuse me, snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. That could, you could involve their satanic, satanic uh, opposition to what you're doing. Because there, there are so many things that can cause good plans, good preparation, and it's on to fail. And that's, I, I can't imagine, uh, you know, I look in this room and even the guys online, I can't imagine you don't know what Paul Solomon was talking about here. All of your lives have examples of that. At some point in your life, you think this was, I worked hard for this, and something happened. So that's all Solomon would say. He doesn't, he doesn't comment on this. It's just an observation. But he has a second illustration, and that's in verses 13 through 16. So, I mean, now he's just using another example to drive home this tension between God's sovereignty and providence and human wisdom. Human wisdom does not always guarantee the result you'd like. I have seen also this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it. A great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor man, a wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. And no one remembered that poor man. I say wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. Now, at one level, just reading this, this story that Solomon presumably makes up, but to illustrate something. Here was this city in the ancient world. All cities had walls around them, and if you're going to conquer this city, you have to lay siege to the city, and you know, you're going to like starve it out and all that. But in this c- catastrophic situation, a poor man, yet a wise man, developed a strategy for the leadership to save the city. And he saved the city. It wasn't conquered. But what happened? The end of verse 15, nobody remembered what he did. You would think he would be rewarded, but nobody remembered. So there's wisdom that should have been rewarded, acknowledged, 
elevated didn't happen. The opposite happened. So what does that cause Solomon to do? I'm still going to conclude wisdom is better than might. It's still better to be wise. Even though the poor man's wisdom is despised and words are not heard. And so, again, wisdom is not always necessarily recognized and rewarded. And in this case, it may, be, it may sound like a ridiculous example, but there was a poor wise man who saved the city. <laughs> you know, he doesn't, get, he doesn't talk about the specific. We have no idea because it's just an illustration. He says, observe that. Third example is one verse. It's actually two verses, but it's verse 17. It actually is only one verse. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sitter destroys much good. That's just, it's kind of a, it's kind of a, an amazing situation. And he uses this as a proverb. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. Little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. Okay, what's his third example? Wisdom can be nullified. You know what nullified means? Wisdom can be nullified by stupidity and folly. The words of a wise man heard and quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. And the idea here, you have a very quiet situation where a person is, is speaking very wisely, making declarations of wisdom that are profoundly important, and you have this ruler shouting stupid things. Wisdom is better than weapons of war. Agree with that? But one sinner destroys the good. And he uses a proverb. You can picture this, can't you? Dead flies. Make the perfume ointment give spend. You have this expensive, and in the ancient world, that was how they how they dealt with body order. They didn't shower every day. They they didn't have deodorant. They used a special kind of perfume to to neutralize the body odor. And what he's saying, you know, a whole bunch of dead flies in perfume. What does it do? It creates a stench. Something gets decaying and rotting. So little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. He's talked like that throughout the book. It's much better to be wise. But one foolish person or one foolish statement can neutralize all the wisdom of the world. What another word for outweighs being a gate? Exactly, a gate. All right, example number four is verse 2 through 7 of chapter 10. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, a fool's heart to the left. Now, in the ancient world, and to, maybe to some degree that's true today, but in the ancient world, the, to the right, of a king or to, is, was a place of honor, a place of prestige, a place of protection, a place of security. The left was considered the place of dishonor, the place of fool. Which, by the way, is one of the reasons why until fairly recently to be a left-handed writer was not something looked upon with favor. 
<laughs> Did you ever know that? <laughs> Did you know that King George the Sixth, Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth, former Queen Elizabeth's father, he was left-handed. He wrote with his left hand. He threw a ball with his left hand. And his father, King George the Third, insisted, insisted that he stop it. That no king should be left-handed. And so he forced his son to learn how to write right-handed, learn how to throw a ball right-handed. He, he played golf left-handed. He, he, I mean, all of these things, because to be left-handed was to, to exemplify degradation, inferiority, and no royal should be left-handed. And it comes from this ancient, ancient proverbial way of looking. It has nothing to do with earlier. It's just yeah, that. It seems so foolish because God, God's made some people abandon. And so what's the point of making a statement when God has already created that situation? Well, Fred, we think we know better than what God knows. So we want to change things. I'm left-handed. I, I write with my left hand, but I throw, I, I play baseball, I throw with my right hand, and I play golf with my right hand, I play tennis with my right hand, but I write left-handed. I don't mind. I can, I can write right-handed, but not quite as well. But my daughter says, it doesn't matter which hand you write with, I still can't read. <laughs> We've noticed that on the board. Yeah, I know, I, I know, I know. So all, okay, let's get back now to the, the, the point. Even when a fool, I'm in verse three, even when a fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. He says to everyone, he's a fool. That's interesting. You follow a fool around, you see he's a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay good offenses to the rest. Okay, now, what, what is he saying here? What, what he's talking about is you will know a fool and you will know a wise man. Just follow them around. But he goes on in verse 5, there's an evil that I've seen under the sun, an error proceeding from the world. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in low places. I've seen slaves and horses, princes walking on ground like slaves. Okay, now, now what, what is he saying there? I have seen an awful lot of fools in high places. Just because you're a ruler does not necessarily mean you're going to be wise. Because I've seen folly in high places. And I've seen the rich in low places. I've seen slaves and horses. Slave never rode a horse. That was a, in, in, in terms of, of, the, of the, uh, the ancient Near Eastern culture. And I've seen princes walking on the ground like slaves. I've seen roles reversed. And he's just making observations about life. Just because, just because you're a ruler doesn't mean you're going to be wise. Because I've actually seen slaves that are a lot wiser than rulers. And I've seen princes you know, going to inherit the throne, walking on the ground like slaves. He's just making observations about life. Wisdom is better than folly. But not everyone in positions of power and authority are wise. Example number five. In, ver in example number five, which is verse eight through verse eleven, he speaks about he talks and these are like proverbs. Every one of these is like a proverb. 
It's like an observation about life. And he's saying wisdom is necessary in the mundane, innocuous activities of life. They'll be wise. He's an example. He who digs a pit will fall into it. A serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who carries stones is hurt by them. He who splits logs is endangered by them. The iron is blunt, and one does not sharpen the edge. He must use it for strength. Wisdom helps one to succeed. So his conclusion is, wisdom helps you to succeed. So let's go back and look at these four mundane aspects of life. You're digging a pit. That has a potential of grave danger. You could fall into the pit if you're not careful. Okay, you're building a wall. You have to be very careful, very wise, because there could be a serpent in the rocks. Do you, that, when in our house, when we bought our house in 1983, 84, we assumed an FHA mortgage was the only place we could afford. We moved here at that time, but all, it went, there were retaining walls in the backyard, and they all had collapsed. Every retaining wall had collapsed. Some were railroad ties, others were, were rocks and stones. They weren't the neat the landscape rocks you see today that cost enormous amounts of money. They were just regular rocks in a cloud. And you know what we observed the first summer we were there? Because that was one of the first things I rebuilt all those walls. There were unbelievable numbers of snakes in those rocks. <laughs> they, were, they were nesting in those rocks. They had huge nests. At one, one place, I started pulling the rocks out. Four snakes came out. <laughs> Now, I was okay with that, but you should have heard my wife scream. I mean, it was unbelievable. And I, I'm saying all that because all Solomon is saying is wisdom helps you to succeed. End of verse 10. You're building a rock wall. Be careful about serpents. That's wisdom. You're quarrying stone. You, you, know, you, you're, you know what he means by that. You're, you're cutting stone out. You're going to use for building. Be really be careful with that. You can, if you're, your axe is in shop, you're in trouble. And then you're splitting logs, you know, presumably for firewood. You're splitting logs. Be careful with that. Depending on how you're splitting, it could fly up and hit you in the head. What's he saying? In the common mundane things of life, be wise. If a serpent bites before it's charmed, there's no advantage to the charmer. You think, what in the world is he bringing that up for? He's using, and this is, He's not approving of this, but this was something that was common in the ancient world. These snake charmers, these are, these are people who are, are trying to dazzle you. And he's saying, if the snake bites before you're charmed, there's no advantage. He's saying, what he's saying is, wisdom needs to be applied now, not when it's too late. A wise person is a person who's careful when they're digging a pit, who's careful when they're building a rock wall, who's careful when they're cutting stones, who's careful when they're splitting off. Because if you wait too late to be careful, it may be your demise. And so he uses that proverb to illustrate that. Do not apply wisdom too late in life. Jim, are you the wisdom that we talk about is that relational uh, God, are we thinking that wisdom comes from God and that if we apply what he gives us as far as wisdom, then we are 
able to enjoy more things in life, or how would you define it? Well, well, yeah. I mean, wisdom is. We we did some things with that much earlier in our class, but wisdom in the way in which he's talking about here is the wise application of beneficial knowledge. Now, if you're talking about spiritual wisdom, that's the wise application of God's revelation in how to live. But this is the, this is just everyday life. This is the wise application of, of, of knowledge, of beneficial knowledge. And it's just like, um, and he's, I mean, this is it's a very simple point that he's making. If you want to enjoy your life, be wise, even in mundane things. And you and I are sitting there saying, well, duh, I don't need to know that. I I have learned a couple of things in my life about doing very mundane things, and I'll give you two illustrations. First illustration was when we moved into our house. Peggy wanted to, my wife Peggy wanted to put wallpaper on the bedroom wall in which our room was, our, our bedroom. We had two other small bedrooms, wouldn't be for our kids. And so we started the task of hanging wallpaper. <laughs> do you know something I learned that day? Oh, wow. Peggy and I cannot do this together. <laughs> we, we, we couldn't. I mean, we couldn't. <laughs> she knew, and this is really amazing, because my, my wife knew exactly what she wanted to do. She, I mean, she... It was one of those, you know, there was a, a border along the top, and then there was a border. I mean, she had it all set up. And here I am, okay, honey, just tell me what to do. But hey, I'm doing that right. Okay, so how do you want me to do it? I'm usually the one, you know, I'm building a wall outside or building a, uh, a thing for the kids out in the backyard with lumber and all that. But this was her project. So I, I reached the conclusion, the wise thing for me to do is to let her hang the wallpaper in the bedroom. And she, she did a fantastic job. It's still there. She did that in 1984. It's still there. But I'd have to do it. Because if I would have done it, if I, if I would insist on helping her, we would have been divorced. You know, that's what would happen. Our marriage would never have survived. I'm being a little hyperbolic there. But this is what Solomon's saying. When you are dealing with the task of life, be wise. Think, think wisely about your task. If you're going to build a rock wall, always be careful. Serpents like to be in rock. They like the damp. That's where serpents So Just be careful. If you're going to hang wallpaper with your wife, let her do it. That was my, that was my proverb that I would put. The other thing I learned was there are certain things I love to do, the own, my own projects at my house. I really do. I love working outside and all that stuff. But there are certain projects I don't do very well. Hire somebody to do it. <laughs> They're Ekman Proverbs for how to live wisely. The sixth example starts with verse 12 and goes to verse 20. And then he'll draw some conclusions. That's probably as far as we'll get today. Now, verse 12 through 20 talks about the words we use, the language we use. The words of a wise man's mouth 
win him favor. The lips of a fool consume him. Did you ever notice how many times in the Bible God wants us to think about the words we say, the language we use? In the, in the, we're going to be studying this in a couple of months. The epistle of James, James addresses, there are five chapters in James. Two of his chapters deal with what the words we use, our speech. That's what Solomon's saying. What comes out of our mouth in words can win favor, win people over. The fool consumes him. Words consume him. And what does he mean by that? The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness. The end of his talk is evil madness. Now, he's elaborating upon the fool while he's consumed. What does he mean? The fools of the, the words of a foolish person consume that person. The words of a foolish person ultimately are self-destructive. The words of a foolish person expose what's really in their heart. The words of an evil person are, are not self-elevating. They're ultimately self-defeating. And a wise man knows that. A fool multiplies words, verse 14. Now no man knows what is to be, and who can tell what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. So he, he's just, he, he makes one propositional statement. Wise man's mouth wins him favor. The words of a fool are self-defeating and ultimately self-destructive and leads to very foolish He's just making a comment that we've seen throughout this book. But he's applying it here. That is being wise versus being fool. But he's specifically focusing in on the words that we use. The language we use. You know, today, in one sense, today, this is even more piercing and penetrating than it was in the ancient world. Because this can preserve our words. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You say something and it gets on Instagram or Facebook or gets on FaceTime or, or some other way in which you communicate. It can be always there. For all eternity, it might be here. I mean, really, you know what I'm talking about. Don't you? Yes. Okay, I want to make sure you know what I'm talking about. But I mean, it's, just, it's really interesting because... You say something today, depending on the context and somebody's taping it or has their phone on or has an MP3 player, whatever it is, I mean, that could be preserved for the rest of time. And all Solomon is saying is it really matters what you say. Then he applies this in the remaining section here. He applies this to a ruler, to a leader. He applies this to someone that's in authority. Verse 16. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Okay, you know what? These, these are almost, again, proverbial observations. When your child is, when your king is a child, 
He doesn't mean he's a five-year-old. And he means it. Your king is acting like a child. He's incompetent. Your princess will feast tomorrow. What does that mean? It doesn't mean they, they get up and have this, this enormous this enormous feast of food. No, what he means is they're undisciplined. They have no structure and plan and, 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 and focus for their life. You have a ruler who's un, incompetent and undisciplined. Verse 17, happy are you, land, when your king is the son of the nobility. Your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Contrast, incompetent, undisciplined versus competent and disciplined. You choose what kind of ruler you want. You're blessed if you have the one, woe to you. And then he goes on in verse 18 and verse 19, further talking about incompetency in leadership. Fools in leadership. Through sloth, the roof sinks in. Through indolence, the leak, the house leaks. You know what sloth means? ESV translates it. It's lazy. Sloth and indolence, lazy. Through let's just put it. Through laziness, the roof sinks. Through through laziness, the house leaks. What does that mean? An incompetent ruler doesn't take care of the basic things of the kingdom. Always interested in his incompetent, undisciplined, self-serving, self-centered life. You don't want to rule like that. Bread is made for laughter. Wine gladdens life. Money answers everything. So he, the competent ruler is not only lazy. The incompetent ruler's lifestyle is so self-centered. He's only had bread, laughter, wine gladdens life. Money's the answer. To everything. Incompetence. Priorities are all mixed up. And that's all he's, he's just making these observations. The competent, disciplined ruler is why. The incompetent, undisciplined ruler is a fool. And you see it in how they live their life. Verse 20. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king. Nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for the bird of the air will carry your voice, and some winged creature will tell the matter. <laughs> Wisdom is someone who practices discretion and someone who practices care. Because if you start criticizing him, he may the bird may take it to him. People can hear that, but in the wise. Again, back to the words you use. Even in your criticism of your ruler, be wise, be discretionary. Be careful. Doesn't that make sense? That's uh, two, two laws of physics, the speed of light and the speed of sound. The speaker always looks so good until you hear his words. Mm, that's good. That's good. All right. Now, you know, we're about to crack into chapter 11 because now he's going to give his conclusion. And it's very famous, verses 1 through 4 of 11 are very famous. Right, but are you with me? See what we've done today? God's providence in dealing with the issue of joy. You can't figure everything out. But God still wants you to enjoy what he's given you. And now human, God's providence and human wisdom, just because you're wise, 
doesn't mean you're going to figure everything out. And I just go through those five examples that you choose. Now he, he, he brings this to a conclusion. I, I only have about five minutes, but I'd really like to finish this so that next week we can deal with the last major part of the book. What he does is he said, okay, given these six examples, what should I do? How should I live? What, what should characterize my life? Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even eight, for you do not know what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. If a tree falls to the south or to the north, if the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow. He who regards the clouds will not reap. What in the world? These are proverbs rooted in understanding and accepting two things. First, God's providence. And two, the eternal significance of everything we do. So again, based on everything he's been saying, in a way, everything he's been saying through the whole book, but here particularly in this section, God's providence and human wisdom. Live your life in light of two key propositions. The certainty of the providence of God and second, the eternal significance of everything we do. It is a philosophy of life. A philosophy of life, let's put it the way Solomon would want us to put it. A wise person is a person who has this philosophy of life. I believe in God's providence and I trust it. And I believe in the eternal significance of everything I do, because everything I do is important to God. So therefore, I'll cast my bread upon the waters, and I will find it many days. Now, that's a proverb. What does that mean? I am planning and preparing for the future. And I will find what I'm saving, what I'm preparing for. I will, number two, verse two, I will be generous, give a portion to seven, even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. Be generous, be overflowing, because you don't know what disasters are going to happen to you or to people. And then thirdly, in verse three and verse four, Planning means that you're going to be busy doing what God wants you to do. You're not waiting around. If clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. Uh, okay. If a tree falls to the south or the north, the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. Who controls that? He who observes the wind will not sow, and he regards the clouds will not reap. What does he mean? Okay, what he's saying is, look, there's a normal pattern that God controls. The clouds are full of rain, it's going to rain. Should that affect how you think about planting your crops? Or do you sit around and wait for the perfect time? Who regards the clouds will not reap. They're always like, no, no, no. 
in the springtime, it's time to plant. Because the spring rains are going to come. They're going to nurture your seeds, and they're going to become plants. They're going to grow and be harvested in the fall. All he is saying is it's the wise person plans, is generous, and takes advantage of the opportunities of daily life. There's nothing terribly, there's nothing terribly complex about this. You do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones of the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. Okay, what's he saying there in verse 5? You don't know when the baby's going to be born. Today, your OB-GYN doctor tried to determine when conception occurred and then takes a count or counts and says, this is the date. But I know with my kid, the date the OB-GYN doctor said was not the date the child was born. It was close. It was close. It really was. I mean, uh, uh, our son Luke, grandson here in town, Luca, was almost two weeks early. Whereas George, who's our first grandson, he, he, his parents live in England, he, he was seven days late. And Tommy, who is our second grandson, kids in England, Tommy was seven days early. Now, I, I was like, that's what Solomon was saying. So you do not know the work of God who makes everything. Does that mean we don't plan? Does that mean we don't, we're not generous? Does that mean we don't take advantage of the normal routines of life? No. He controls the results. This is back to the providence of God. You can't deter it, but he can and so, in the morning sow your seed, evening withhold not your hands, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Mundane things. Busy, plan, be generous, take advantage of this normal schedule thing, but leave the results to God. I don't know about you. That's pretty wise advice. So Solomon he's making all these observations about life. He's bringing everything he's been writing out to its conclusion. And it's not terribly radical. It's certainly not revolutionary. It's wise. Because as you do, trusting God with the results, you will enjoy the life that he's given you. Okay, men. Tomorrow, no, strike that. Next Wednesday. I don't think we'll get the book finished, but we're going to get very close to getting the book finished. I'll start with verse 7 of chapter 11, and we're going to go through, I, I think is a real possibility. I mean, it's an outside chance, because somebody might start asking questions. Russ might ask me four questions next week, and I'll never get it done. <laughs> Sorry. So, well, you know what? I probably will finish the book next week. We'll get very, very close to finishing the book. And if we do that, we can have that. Well, it's going to depend uh, if I don't feel pressure from you. It's going to depend <laughs> if I have enough time this week to get everything that I'm preparing. I think so. I think well, I'll. And, and you can always email. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, but I, I have a pretty good idea of what I want to do with the two books. But I have thought them many times that I'm trying to put them together. A little bit of the unique way for the class. So, but we're definitely going to go ahead with grace. But you are nearing the end. I don't get to say that too often in this class that we almost finished with a book. But it's really, really wonderful. It's a. I hope you enjoyed this study. I always enjoy teaching 
Ecclesiastes. It's such a realistic book to come to terms with. Let me pray here. Oh, I keep looking at that thing and it doesn't move. Lord, thank you for Solomon, uh, his reflections on life. And I um, encourage all of us to just think again to what he said at the beginning of the section we looked at this morning about God's providence and the call to human joy. And Solomon's argument is we're never going to figure everything out. We're not God. We're not eternal. We're not infinite. But God, who is in control of things and his providence is really, he's involved in accomplishing his purposes, encourages us to enjoy all aspects of our life. It's a gift from him. He gives us a capacity to enjoy. And it's that attitude of gratitude about life. It doesn't mean we burst into hilarious laughter with everything that happens, but we trust you. And now Solomon is also encouraging us to be wise, to have and believe and trust in your providence, but also to see the eternal significance of everything we do. Everything we do is important to you. And those those two truths are both comforting, but they're also convicting because it leads to the proposition that we are also accountable to you. So, Lord, give us your joy, give us the fulfillment in all aspects of our life, because we do all things to your glory. We do all things to bring honor and glory to you. We serve you because you have given us not only a physical life, you've given us spiritual life. We have experienced the rebirth of the Holy Spirit. So help us in what we do and what we say to represent you well, because it is important to you how we live our lives. But we trust you with these things. We with each man here online, as well as in the room here, to represent you well to this world that needs to hear and to see a gospel-energized life. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. 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 See you guys next week.